first of all, thank you for agreeing to this interview and also oh, for course. putting out such an amazing book, um, okay. as well as organizing and curating the Three World, Three Voices programming for Litquake. That was really incredible. And I suppose the first thing I want to ask you is how did you go about choosing the two writers to and your curation of um, Saturday's program? Well, I'm um, a longtime fan and also a friend of Carolina's. And um, we have done a couple of events to promote Boomerang together. And it's usually, you know, her conversing with me about Boomerang, even though she has a book out now too that's pretty new, um, The President of the Frog, which I affectionately refer to as a Comandante and the Lemur. Uh, <laughs> um, but um, so I felt like it, this was an opportunity to give her a, a chance to showcase her work um, and I'm a big admirer of her work. Um, and Ingrid, I, I don't really know very well, uh, but I've read a little bit of her stuff and I know her work from uh, some stuff that got published when she lived in Chicago and I lived in Chicago I and mean, we weren't in the same circles, but, um, and I just thought it would be a, her voice is just, um, I, th I thought it was a nice bridge between Carolina and me, plus she was reading memoir, Carolina was reading fiction, I was reading poetry, and it felt like a nice buffet. Yeah. Yeah, so. Oh, I totally agree with that. I think it, I think it was a really cool cross-section of, of all of all those different genres and still with yeah. a similar, you know, enough cohesiveness as well, too. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and we're all three Latinos, but from different places. Yeah. And you know, and everybody has a slightly different experience. And so it just felt, uh, I don't know, it just, it just felt like it was a, a, a possibly a really uh, cohesive and, and simpatico kind of lineup. And so. I really felt that way. That's why I was asking how, how it came about, because yeah. I, I totally agree. Yeah. And then my next question is about your book specifically, like, um, trying to make it like to to make it sort of like non-binary gender especially with um the spanish language <laughs> like that just seems like incredibly radical and revolutionary to me and i'm i'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you came to that idea and how it was to do it well i mean there is inclusive language in spanish um and the e is that subs the a and the o for the gendered words um is certainly not my invention it's it's been out there for a while um but and and the e in some ways is also like a it's not exactly a response to the x but i think because i think it actually predates the x but um it's become in some ways a response to the x because um the x in latinx which is sort of what gets used a lot um, is very much a product of uh, U.S. Latinos, and it, the X is unpronounceable in Spanish, and so there's been a pushback, a big pushback from Latin America and from Spanish-dominant um, Latines in the U.S. Um, who want a word that everybody can use, that everybody is inclusive about. So um, there's been more and more sort of experimentation around um, you know, how do we do this? How do we 
you know, get away from this inherent binary that's embedded in all romance languages. Um, and I think it was about like two years ago, the, the president of Argentina did a short speech using all inclusive language, which was really kind of cool. And so it's been getting more and more mainstream, but my problem with the way that it's been approached is that it eliminates gender in subjects that is in, in, in people, but it doesn't get rid of the binary in the language. Right. So what ends up happening is that you come up with sentences that are something to the effect of um, this person, non-gendered, um, is sitting at the feminine table, drinking their masculine coffee and spreading the feminized butter on the masculine bread with their masculine knife um, while waiting for their feminine pastry, you know? So it, the gender is still embedded in the language and the gender isn't utilitarian. It's not like, you know, it's not like it's even attached to, uh, you know, functionality. You know, you, I mean, you could argue, well, you know, la cocina, the kitchen, of course, women, it should be feminine, right? I mean, I'm not saying this is so, but I mean, you could make an argument that historically, this is how some of these things have developed, but in fact, it's, it's not true at all. Um, the, the gender is very divorced from functionality. Clitoris is masculine, explain that one. Um, you know, um, in, in, in Spain, the word for dick, la polla, is feminine. How does that work? Um, you know, um, so, and, and, you know, and in Cuba too, you know, la pinga is also yeah. feminine. So what is the point of having gender then if it, if it doesn't sort of, a, you know, it, it, it's, it doesn't have any kind of use. I mean, all it seems to do is to remind us of this division. Yeah. So what I ended up doing was um, going through the text and degendering all of it, all of the objects, all of the adjectives, um, all of the pronouns, direct and indirect, you know, with the exceptions of those that didn't have, a, you know, that didn't actually divide, like conmigo, the word for with me, it sounds masculine because of the O, but there is no comiga. Right. So it remained, you know, like that. Um, and then once I did that, I had another big problem, which is that I realized that gender was actually an inherent part of the story for some of these particular poems, you know, like um, the piece about Ana Mendieta. You know, Ana Mendieta was a young, incredibly radical feminist artist whose entry into the art world was fraught precisely because she was a woman. I mean, more so because she was a woman of color, but first and foremost, because she was a woman. Um, you know, the, the resentments, the jealousies, the, the not taken seriously that happened to her, um, especially early in her career, but throughout her career, were, were not because the work wasn't, uh, you know, bold and interesting and, and, and well-founded and, you know, researched and conceptualized in brilliant ways. It was because she was a woman. So to 
to do a poem that uses Ana Mendieta in this very particular way and then ends with her death when she was murdered by her husband. And she was murdered by her husband because she was a woman. You know, she's just part of this larger story of domestic violence. Um, so once I degendered her, I also was erasing her. Mm. And that seemed like a bad idea. I didn't want to do that. So I went back and the whole poem isn't regendered, just her, just her in the piece. Um, and then there was another poem, um, a piece that mentions Hemingway and my mother. And again, it made me pause because my mother was very much a woman of her time and place, but specifically a woman. My mother saw limitations and sort of took her victories and you know triumphs in very particular ways because she was a woman who had been restricted and limited and you know fucked in various ways but also Hemingway is like a, a totem a monument to toxic masculinity so if you erase that about him if you erase his gender you're I mean you're literally erasing his legacy but also what makes him particular in American literature is completely you know just invisible if you if you can't talk about masculinity embedded in an actual man a bio man who you know holds on to this thing and who is raised with these notions of what a man is and thus has this terrible adulthood um you know and relationship around women then you're not being honest to the situation i mean we aspire to a gender-free world, I hope. We aspire to a place where these things are, that are constructs are in fact no longer there, but the world we live in actually still has those things. And so it was, it was impossible for me. I mean, maybe somebody else could do it in a creative and interesting way, but I just couldn't, I couldn't, uh, step into the linguistic experiment without feeling that that bit of intellectualism was erasing a very important political aspect of the story yeah and because it's it, it's it can't be all or nothing right like yeah it, it, there's the intention then there's the impact then there's the truth then there's the the historical legacy then the, it's like right. it's all swimming within that current cauldron right of like right, what you're trying right. to do so right. and you know i mean maybe there's there's another way to write about this maybe there's another way of doing these things i'm i mean i'm not saying this is the way i'm just saying this is a way that i concocted to tell my stories you know maybe next time out i'll do it differently or i'll feel differently but certainly right now that's kind of what i walked away with you know i i also had to grapple with the fact that this is not my everyday language. This is not a language that I actually use in everyday speech. Mm. My my everyday speech with my friends when I speak Spanish is gendered. And, and you know, there are certain words that we're all sort of using now that are non-gendered. You know, we say todes instead of todos. We say amigas instead of amigas or amigos. You know, there is certainly a certain terminology that has entered the mainstream and that is you know, is used casually, you know, now. Um, but the bulk of it 
is still completely, you know, academic. And it, it is not the language with which we tell our, our intimate stories. And it is not the language in which we communicate verbally and orally. I mean, even in writing, I think we do it more mm -hmm. than we do it verbally. Um, but, you know, you never know. You never know how that's going to come around. Um, you know, when I, when I was six and seven years old, I'd never heard of a transgender person. My kid had the same nanny from the time he was two to the time he was um, six. And in those four years, Mara became Denez. And Ilan adjusted to the pronoun as if he were drinking a glass of water. Yep, yep. You know, it was not hard for him to do that at all. He just, he, you know, he just moved right in. And in fact, we, a few years ago, we, we were very amused because he's got this very tomboyish girl cousin in Iowa. And she was moaning and groaning about the fact that she'd gotten to an age where, you know, she had to put a shirt on and, you know, some of those things started coming into play. And she was bitching to him about how, you know, he got to do certain things by virtue of being a boy. And she said, I, I wish I was a boy. And Elon's response was, oh, you can be. You absolutely can be, you know? Um, and so, you know, I think, you know, he doesn't talk this way either, but he, he talks much closer to it than I do. And he will talk much closer to it than I do because he's growing up in a world that's different and that's more supportive and more open and more loving and more accepting. So, or at least I hope so. Yeah. I love it. That is so cool. So I want to read you a quote from Audre Lorde that's kind of um, the the overarching theme of what I'm doing by putting these two different, very different showcases of Litquake and these, these different poets and writers together. Oh. Um, so this is from her Sister Outsider book, and it's her Poetry is Not a Luxury book, um, or essay rather mm -hmm. um because i just i think that um it's just really important in terms of where, where she's going and kind of what i think about in terms of when people are living their purpose and how it can contribute to social change and revolution right so she says in the forefront of our move toward change there is only poetry to hint at the possibility made real for there are no new ideas, there are only ones, only new ways of making them felt, of, of examining what those ideas feel like being lived on a Sunday morning at 7 a.m. after brunch, during wild love, making war, giving birth, mourning our dead, while we suffer the old longings, battle the old warnings and fears of be being silent and impotent and alone, while we taste new possibilities and strengths. So I really love how she's talking about poetry is the is the language of revolution because it makes us feel deeply the possibility of change and what that could look like in a, in a way that we live mm -hmm. and, and and not in a way that um is like an academic experience or exercise, right? Well, I mean, I think it depends on the kind of poetry to be honest, I mean, there is an academic poetry that's very, you know, white tower yeah. or ivory tower. And, um, 
and and can be actually very exclusionary. But I think one of the things that's really interesting that's happening right now is that there is a a, a real fervor for poetry, and it's not that poetry. It's uh, you know it's the poetry of uh, you know, younger people, and it's the poetry of change, and it's the poetry of movement. Um, the, in fact, CNN had a story the other day about how poetry is kind of hitting this kind of apogee, and poetry is selling, but the poetry that's selling is primarily by African American poets, and the people who are reading it are primarily African Americans. And I thought that is absolutely fantastic. You know that there's been this change in the profile of who we think of as the person who reads poetry. You know, it's not some white dude reading Byron, you know, curled up by the fire, you know. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's it's these people who are using words um, to name their possibilities. Because, I mean, I think one of the things that gets lost, I mean, people think, well, poetry is mean, just words. Well, words are not just words, you know. When you name something, it, yeah it becomes a reality in a particular way. It becomes a possibility. It, it becomes a clarion call. And I think that, that one of the great things about poetry is that, yeah, it can be very majestic, but it can also be brutally, you know, just savagely honest in a way that plain speech cannot be. And um, that it can, it can move you, it can take you places quickly, as opposed to prose, you know? And, you know, hitting your nerves in a way also very differently than uh, other forms of writing. I mean, you still need information. You still need to, to, to keep yourself, you know, informed. And, you know, it certainly shouldn't be the only genre anybody reads, no matter, you know, how fantastic poetry is. But I know that it does something to your brain. I read poetry every single day. Part of my everyday sort of self-care is to read at least three poems a day. And in that way, I go through, you know, one or two books, you know, any given month or so. But I, you know, it changes the way I approach language. It opens up something in my brain to deal with things like, you know, some, you know, it, it, having to think in terms of images and in terms of metaphor it and 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 to explore these other worlds that poetry brings and to be able to do it in this compact and concise way um i i would never think to sit down for a writing session without first cracking open a poetry book i mean i i haven't done it in 30 40 years it would be like writing naked or something i don't know i don't know that i could do that that's so cool. It reminds me of June Jordan's um, thing, her book, um, Poetry for the People, where she says one of the things that you need to do is the least amount of words with the most amount of impact is the way yeah. that you think about how you're saying what you're saying. And right. there's there's like this way that I'm also thinking about lying to tell the truth in terms of the way that we can mix metaphor of the like the actual thing we're describing is not something that could happen in in quote unquote reality but it gets right. the point across in a way that is just lands like in your core like into your soul nerve where you just like know it's like a way of knowing i love that it's like a way of knowing that um i think only poetry can do yeah 
So that's very cool. So um, I want, I have two more questions for you. Sure. One of them is how do you navigate or manage just kind of like the echo chamber effect of in terms of thinking about your writing, if you're writing from a stance of change or trying to, you know, write the possibility mm -hmm. in through, write the possibility through your poetry, like make it um, manifest or apparent or possible. Like, how do you navigate that sort of feeling of like your audience and who feeling like the echo chamber, you know what I'm saying? And so how much change can you really do when your audience is already in agreement with you? Or do you feel like that isn't the, the your audience for your poetry? Well, you know, what's funny is I never think about my audience when I'm writing poetry. It's so personal and it's so deep. Like, usually when I'm writing, I don't, I'm not thinking about audience. Although when I'm writing novels, at some point I have to think about audience. I have to consider it. I have to think, what, what is this, um, you know, where's the story going to go? You know, it is it, where am I, you know, who is the right person to take this story out into the world? You know, the right, edit, you know, editorial house, um, the right magazine, whatever. Um, and so, um, audience then becomes sort of crucial. Um, you know, will I get the rights? You know, I need to find a place that will support this, you know, who will support this? Um, poetry, I, I've always felt like belong to me first. Mm. And, um, and so I held it very close to my heart. In fact, both of these are uh, this book and my chapbook before it were complete publishing accidents, even though I write poetry and even though I'm very engaged in poetry, I, I never really thought about publishing poetry. I mean, I used to, in my twenties, send stuff out. So I got published a lot very early on on my, almost all of my early publication, um, is poetry but then at some point I, I just stopped doing that I was I was concentrating on prose and thinking about novels and you know at one point I was uh you know doing journalism and you know these things require more time and also I wasn't thinking of poetry in terms of like the curation of a book I mean I would write you know a poem about you know applesauce one day and then I could write a poem about you know hammers the next, you know, it, it didn't matter. They didn't have to come together. Um, but what ended up happening was that a friend of mine, Lawrence Schimmel, who's um, an editor, um, used to, when I lived in Chicago, he would come visit once a year and he'd stay for about a week because he was almost always going to a, a sci-fi convention up in Madison, or he was doing the, you know, some the book, the book fair or something in Chicago. And while he was there, he um, he conned me at one point to into bringing out. I mean, we we talked poetry all the time, and he he you know I ended up showing him my notebooks, and uh, he said, "There's a there's a chapbook in here. In fact, there's like ten of them. Um, you know, let's let's do something." And I and I actually said, "I have the foggiest idea where I would begin to do this." So Lawrence pieced together, uh, you know, a, a raw version of this. Uh, chapbook, which is called uh, "This is uh, This is What Happened in Our Other Life," and to my surprise, he says not his, but to my surprise, um, the chapbook did very well. At one point, it was on the Poetry Foundation's bestseller list, and it got really, really good critical acclaim. And suddenly, people started treating me differently in the literary universe. It was like I noticed that 
no matter what I said in my bio, people would improvise and add poet to my bio. And I was like, whoa, but I, you know, but well, you get it. And then um, I did a, an essay for a book called Passing, uh, which was published by Beacon Press and it was edited by Lisa Page. And Lisa had introduced me to the editor who at one point sent me a note and said, you know, we'd love to publish anything you want to do. And I was like, okay, sure. You know, thinking I am with Akashic, I'm very happy, you know. Um, but I had started to write poetry rather feverishly and I realized um, I might have a book and I started piecing it together just sort of as a, a, you know, an intellectual exercise. It wasn't like actually meant to happen. And then when I had it together, you know, Akashic isn't a poetry press. They do publish poetry, but, and I did send it to them because I felt a responsibility to, to engage with them because they are the most wonderful people you could possibly imagine. And they've been really, really good to me, but they were like, we love it. We think it's beautiful and we wouldn't know what the fuck to do with it, which was, you know, really honest and which I appreciated. So I just agentless, um, sent it to Beacon on a lark and to this, this particular editor. And she wrote back and she said, uh, yeah, I'm not the poetry person, but I'll pass it on. And then like in a week, they were like, we want to publish this. When can we do this? Which was also kind of an awkward situation. Cause then I had to go back to my agent and say, uh, Jonah, <laughs> and he said, you did what? <laughs> you know? uh, not to mention that he was like, why are you messing with poetry when you need to finish that novel? Um, but so the book was kind of an accident and then it got like bigger than I ever thought it would, you know, because they decided to start a new imprint. This was the first book in the imprint. Oh, They're wow. launching the imprint on this book. And I suddenly became this big deal. And I had to like, uh, sort of wrap my head around the fact that I was going to have to step up and do it, talk about it, stand, you know, that it, this wasn't just a, a random little poem that got published in this or that magazine. This was like a thing that I had to really care about. And, um, and, you know, and then the curation became really, really serious. And I, um, I've always loved curating stuff. I mean, whenever I've edited short stories, it's just something I absolutely love doing. And so it, I, it, yeah, I mean, but this was kind of an accident. Um, and the audience never played in my mind very much until I realized Oh my God, this poetry book is going out into the same world where Natalie Diaz publishes poetry and Jericho Brown publishes poetry and Carolyn Forchet po publishes poetry. And like, you know, all these people whom I love and admire and am in awe of, you know, so it like I, they became sort of my audience in the sense that I, I wanted to be worthy of standing in their company, you know, of having my book next to theirs on the, on the bookshelf. Um, and it's been really intense. The people who picked it up and, you know, uh, responded to it, sent me emails and stuff. It's, um, it's, it's been a, a pretty wild ride. Cause it's been, you know, students and, you know, old Cuban ladies who are saying, you know, hey, your Spanish is all wrong here. 
<laughs> I've got two of those. Really? I really love the poems, but the Spanish is all wrong. You have to get a better editor. Because uh, <laughs> they obviously went right past the author's note. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, it's, um, it, you know, I, I think of it more when I do the actual reading and I look out at that. It's like, oh, my God, what am I going to read this to, you know? If there had been more uh, lesbians out there on Saturday, I might have read a love poem. But it seemed more of a social justice kind of crowd, so yeah, I went yeah. that route. No, yeah. for sure. I, I love this. So the imprint is called Raised Voices, yeah? Yes. And it says, a poetry series established in 2021 to raise marginalized voices and perspectives, to publish right. poems that affirm progressive values and are accessible to a wide readership and to celebrate poetry's ability to access truth in a way that no other form can. Yeah. I mean, that's what yeah. we were just talking about. That's so cool. But to be like, you're being so humble, dude. Like yours is the first <laughs> book for that. Like, that's amazing to me. Like, I love yeah. that. I mean, and the other people in the series are like unreal. Raquel Salas Rivera, Tim Z Hernandez. I mean, it's such an incredible collection of people um, I mean, and it's not just Latinos, it's all sorts of people, but those are the ones I remember. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, and it's, it's, I think it's going to be an amazing series. It's, uh, it, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of amazed. I mean, a lot of, the, I'm still sort of amazed by a lot of this, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. So, I mean, I can hear that in like, you are not someone who I have experienced who has hesitation. And I can hear it in your like, this is, they asked me to be the first book for the imprint. Like, like I can hear that, like <laughs> that sort of like, I just said that out sentence out loud and that's how it happened. And that, you know what I mean? Like there's still like an integration of that fact. Yeah, actually, to be honest with you, I, when it, when it first happened, I don't think I even registered it. It was like down the line when it, you know, when I like, you know, actually started seeing some of the facsimiles of the book as it was being designed and stuff. And I was like, oh, and then they sent me the, that little thing that you just read. They sent that to me to be translated. They said, well, hey, do you mind translating this? And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> this is the thing, you know? So yeah, no, it's it a little, it's a little crazy, but it thrills me. You know, sure. it really does. It really, it really thrills me. The only part of this that makes me just a little sad is that my mom and my dad aren't around because um, they were, uh, they were adamant that I be Spanish speaking. Uh. Um, and, you know, they suffered a lot to make sure that I was Spanish speaking especially my dad. My dad went through hell to make sure that I could read and write Spanish and that it wasn't just this choppy domestic stuff that I, you know, had, a, a, you know, that I had a working, functional, natural, you know, ability to, to, to speak in Spanish. And um, I, I think he would appreciate the experiment like no one else. I think he would probably be as he used to say, uh, you know, or como sapo, you know, he would, you know, blow up like a toad, you know, uh, with pride. Um, so that's the only thing that makes me a little bit sad because I feel like it's it, it linguistically it's it's close to the kind of thing that they would appreciate. All my other stuff to them is in English, mm. and so um, 
it, this would have been kind of cool. The, the, my, my one book in Spanish that's originally in Spanish was published in Cuba. So of course they had all sorts of ideological problems with it. <laughs> I mean, before they even had cracked it open, it was like, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can read this. <laughs> Look at the poor paper quality. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay, I have two two last questions. Who sure. Who's your favorite poet or who are you reading right now? Or who do you see as like a poet mentor for you? And I, I know I hear that you didn't really think of yourself as a poet, like you did it. And then you took, there was this like big break kind of, but mm. you still read, read poetry. I heard you also say every day, like mm. um, even when you weren't writing it. And so I'm wondering, so approach it any way you want. Who you're reading right now, who's your favorite poet or who do you see as a poet mentor in your life? Um, I don't know that I have a favorite, to be honest. I mean, there are people that I go back to all the time. The The book that I probably go back to the most is Handwriting by Michael Ondaatje. I think most people know him as a, as a proser, but um, his poetry is gorgeous. Um, and there's a young poet named uh, Sucrance Reddy, who I used to work with at the University of Chicago. His first book, Facts for Visitors, is also a touchstone for me. I go back to it all the time. Um, there, there are just things in there that I really love. But... I think the 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 poets that really had like a big impact on me were a lot of the feminist poets. Um, when uh, I was a a very young person in Chicago, um, one year I decided that uh, we needed to hear these poets live, and so uh, my then girlfriend and I put together a reading series, and we brought to Chicago Adrian Rich, Audre Lorde. Olga Brumis and uh, Judy Gron. And um, they were, uh, they're, they're all poets that I think had a, a really impactful, uh, you know, effect on me. Um, somebody else that I read a lot in, in for poetry and, and although she's not, she's a little controversial in a lot of ways, but I find Gertrude Stein to be just genius and I am constantly going back to her as well. Um, had she been alive, we would have included her in that particular series. Um, but it, it was, uh, you know, it was also really important to me to meet those women mm. um, and to uh, actually spend time with them and to talk poetry with them. Um, and uh, it it was, uh, it, this was shortly before uh, Audrey Otsigan died. Um, so it was a, it was a, a really crucial in that sense. Also, when we first met, um, she um, she kind of clasped my hand and she said, I hear you're Cuban. And I said, yeah. And she said, have you been to Cuba yet? And I said, no, I haven't. And she said, well, then you must go. You must go. You must go because you will find part of yourself there. And I thought, whoa. <laughs> you know? um, but it, it it propelled me in some ways to, to reconsider that in ways that I hadn't thought about before. Um, Anyway, I mean, it was, those are sort of the, the big ones in, in my mind. I can't believe that Audrey Lord clasped your hand. Yeah, she clasped my hand. Oh, God. Yeah, and I had a, a long correspondence with Olga Burmas for years after she came by, and Judy Gron and I are still friendly, and uh, I mean, Judy's a great poet that I think is is frequently, uh, I, 
just not considered, mm -hmm. you know, uh, but she's a, she's not just a great deck poet. She's a great working class poet. She's a poet who really goes at issues of, 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 of class and race from a white perspective, which doesn't happen very often. Um, and, uh, and she's, uh, you know, really an amazing thinker. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if you've ever read her book about menstruation. It's unbelievable. It's like all the mythology and all of the sort of magic around it. I can't remember the name of it right now, but I'll look it up for you. Um, yeah, I think that would be great. Um, and, uh, it was a, it was a mind boggling read for me at the time. And it really made me feel, uh, magical as a woman. Mm -hmm. And, um, and even though I've never born children, I, it, it made me feel very like fecund, you know, like, yes, this is the, I am, I am a, a place where things can grow and things can do things. And it was a, yeah, amazing thinker. Yeah. And way ahead of her time in terms of a lot of the things that we talk about now, you know, in terms of, you know, our, our approach to land, our approach to, to, to solidarity, our approach to, you know, uh, how we take care of ourselves, our approach to aging. I mean, she's, uh, she's, very special. Oh, very cool. I'm going to check her out. That would be awesome. So my last question is about the theme of this show, which is, um, you know, poetry or the revolution poeticized. And so, um, what do you think, uh, poetry's role is in the revolution and what is the revolution according to you? Well, I think the revolution is a better world. Um, you know, I, I don't think change comes quickly enough. Uh, but, you know, it's like that old saying from the Talmud, you know, you have to keep trying, even though, you know, in your lifetime, it's not going to happen. You still have to, however incrementally, you know, add to the, the march, the progress, the process, um, I think changing the world is also a lot about repairing the world. And uh, I think to look forward, you have to look back a little bit and see where we need to patch things up, where we need to um, rethink things so we don't keep making the same mistakes. Um, I think poetry is reflective and I think poetry is a siren call. And I think poetry is a lot of things that a revolution needs, you know, cause you, it's not just about, uh, uh, uh. you also have to think about what you're going to do. What do you, what are you going to do? You know, what, what is it that you envision? You know, you don't like this. Okay. Let's tear it down. But then what then, what then, what do we build? What are we, striving for what is the goal here um and i think poetry helps that process that thinking process and that envisioning process um possibilities i think seem more real in poetry and with poetry it names things yeah yeah i think that's beautiful Thank, Thank you, you very, very much, much for your time. time. Those are good questions. questions. Really, yeah, really appreciated yeah. them. Good. Okay.